Welcome to the very first episode of the Crew Car Podcast. I am Brayton Cotton, and here with me is my great friend Sean Link from well, Vero Beach. Hello everybody. We're on our way back from doing a ground run on the Citation 10 Plus, showing Sean the 10 Plus for the first time. And uh, we're on our way back and talking about flying. So you want to give a little bit of background of uh, your, your previous flight, pre-flight education and uh, flight education? So, my flight education, formally, and what I currently do, I'm a flight instructor for Piper Aircraft in Vero Beach, trained, uh, teaching in the M600, M500, M350, mostly M600 turboprop time. Uh, before that, got my flight instructor at Florida Tech, did all my fixed wing flight training at Florida Tech, and my introduction into aviation was in my former career as a flight medic in the back of helicopters. Not to mention nuclear chemist. Uh, yes, a yeah, degree in nuclear chemistry. Yeah. Uh, I'm a man of all talents, or many talents. Almost all, for Almost. sure. Uh, you got me beat in engineering. Eh. Well, Mechanical yeah. engineering. Okay. So, um, do you have one story of flying at Piper, flying a Piper airplane that sticks out above all the rest? Uh, okay, I've got a ton of stories. So it's the best part about being a flight instructor is you have an infinite number. Though I am going to have to ponder for a minute on <laughs> stories that would be uh, appropriate for public audience. Because <laughs> there are some that, that are not. Um, there is one that comes to mind uh, and I won't say any tail numbers or names because, you know, easy to find people that way, but uh, student came to school in an M600, had not an accident, but a little incident, just a little one, didn't get the FA involved or anything like that, but he was going back for his recurrent, and he wanted to emphasize the scenario in which got him into that incident, and he also needed an IPC. So we did all of his ground training, which he actually did pretty well. We did his training in the simulator, which also went pretty well, mostly the non-normal stuff. So we went to go fly to complete the IPC, of which the only thing he had to do was a circle to land approach, because we can do everything in the simulator except the circle to land, which is kind of outdated. How often are people doing circle to lands? Anyway. Don't but I've ever done one outside of the simulator. Yeah, outside of training, I don't think I've ever done one. And I certainly really don't want to do one in, you know, actual IMC conditions or at night. Because a lot can go wrong. So, we go up, we fire up the airplane. That goes super well. And we take off out of Vero. I think I can say the airport. Uh, which is where we're going to do the circle to land. Uh... There is a road next to Vero. This will come into play later. For those of you who've already figured it out, who have been double-eye instructors, I think you know what's about to happen. Um, we get clear for our approach with Palm Beach. They you know, know we're doing a circle, which they were very resistant on giving us the clearance to do a circle, and it took a lot of coercion explaining that it was for a... I lied a little bit and said it was for a check ride, but it was for an IPC. And that was the only way they gave us a circle to land. <laughs> so, uh, they were having a bad day, I think. So this guy comes in for his approach, and I told him, you know, while we were out getting vectored, that, you know, the it's overcast 800 feet. I think the MBA off the top of my head is like 420, 450 for the circle for Category Alpha. 
I think maybe 500. It's around that range. At a mile visibility. And I'm, you know, I told him, I said, well, hey, it's two miles and 800 foot overcast. So when you get to 800 feet, you'll break out and circle to the runway. We get on the approach. We go inbound. We get handed off the tower. Uh, tower control. Infamous in Vero Beach. But convenient with the way the airport's laid out. That there's the kind of the two main runways that you do everything on intersect each other and they pretty much make it across uh, so you come down the final to one is allowing you to enter the downwind to the active runway which is what we were told to do we did it 800 feet as he comes circling around he loses sight of the airport this is the best part he also didn't take the foggles off even though I told him you know hey we're we're visual so I don't know he's coordinated um, has to take the foggles off he's doing the weird head tilt thing like he's trying to look through the bottom of them um, and then he looks down at the instrument panel and he looks back up and we are not lined up to the runway we are lined up to a road uh, that's not as close to the airport as you think it is but he's following this road and he didn't do anything until and in the, in the M600, you have the G3000 avionics, and when you load an approach, and especially when you do a circle approach, it's going to yell at you to check runway, because it knows you've planned an approach to one and you're landing on the other. Um, and he didn't do anything until the check runway enunciator came on, which doesn't come on until about 400 feet. So you're letting him come down all the way. Yeah, we were VFR. We were fine. Tower was probably a little confused. Um, all it requires is a little sidestep and you know no no problem and I tell him to take the goggles off and look up and he tells me that he has the runway in sight and I'm thinking okay great we're just gonna sidestep off to the you know to the runway uh, we kept descending at which point I had to say my controls and do a go around and we had to do it again so that was probably an interesting debrief at the end of that uh, that was that that was needless to say that did not result in an IPC uh, sign off that particular day because he wanted to try it a second time and it was already like 4.30 in the afternoon of an 8 hour day and I was like no I admittedly did the excuse of I can only instruct for 8 hours in a day and if we go up and do the approach again I'm going to time out which not entirely true because it's 8 hours of flight instruction not ground but, but he probably needed to go back to the hotel and really really you know kind of digest that one before he came back and tried it again yes which he did and he came back the next day not with me with a different instructor who flies for frontier and had so his background he was in the air force he was an instructor in the air force he had done aerobatic instruction he works for frontier he's a captain there now and he's getting signed off as a line check captain for frontier i guess now spirit depends on who you ask today but after the merger so he, um, yeah, he obviously, anybody that needs help beyond what you can do and yes. all your qualifications, that's the guy. Yes. He is the, other than the, the chief pilot himself, who gets, you know, all the, the really bad ones, uh, he is he is the man. Uh, he did my training when I onboarded. And so set it up for anybody that's not super familiar with an M600. You know, M600, single engine turboprop not necessarily commercial use airplane so the people even though you have a full-on simulator facility and you're doing in airplane training and it's just like going for a big business jet or maybe even an airliner you know this is kind of the 
describe your target audience, um, you know, to, to, for, for who's going to be coming into your facility, buying these airplanes, training on these airplanes, etc. So the M600 is a single engine turboprop. Right now it's limited to pavement operations only. That may change here in the future soon. Um, to allow for grass operations. It can land on 3,500 foot runways. It burns Jet A. It holds six seats, goes 1,480 miles with an NBA reserve of 45 minutes. So it's got good range. Um, it does great in uh, airport performance. And it also has pretty good speed of a, an advertised speed of about 280 to 284. Um, and it kind of depends on weather, atmosphere, your prop, and all that. Um, most of these guys that come into our training center are private owner uh, pilots themselves. So they're the owner of the airplane. They're their own pilots. They're using it for, you know, some are using it for business to get around the country. Um, and a lot of them are using it for personal pleasure travel. We do have a few corporate pilots that come in. They get hired by the owners to fly it. Um, there's one company that uses them on their 135 certificate, which is pretty cool. And their pilots are also, you know, obviously well switched on and always ready to train. But as far as our training center goes, we, in Vero, we have four simulators, uh, classrooms, everything's either a one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one, two students to one instructor, instruction, ground school, all systems-based, instruction in the sim, about uh, flows, checklists, usage, normals, and especially in the simulators, non-normal procedures, so a lot of emergencies. But they're not, most of our clients are, well, in their initials, probably somewhere between the lowest time pilot I've ever seen was 200 hours of total time who had bought an M600. And the most I've ever seen was a retired United pilot who we kind of just ballparked at about 30, 35,000 hours, give or take. So you're really training a wide variety of people. Yes. Is is that, um, tell them what other airplanes y'all are, are training on uh, there at Piper and whatever else you train on. So we train, so for our training facility, we, we will train any Piper aircraft that goes from the Archer all the way to the M600 and anything in between. The majority that we train on, I would say it's 98% of the airplanes we train are the M600, the M500, uh, and the M350, which is all the new naming for the Malibu, the Mirage, the Matrix, the Meridian, 600, obviously only ever known by that name. That could um, be its own episode, all the different nomenclature that Piper's used. Oh my god. It's, it's so confusing to someone who who hasn't been around it for years and I don't like ATC gets it confused all the time you know are you the turboprop are you the piston are you the fast piston are you the fast turboprop um, so the 500 and the 600 which the 500 is also the Meridian and I think everyone's starting to see the confusion now uh, those are the turboprop airplanes the 350 the Malibu the Mirage the Matrix those are all piston engine airplanes all of them are pressurized except the Matrix um, and they all have uh, six seats or six-seated certified aircraft. We do also offer training for the Archer. We also training offer training for the Seminole, should people want training in those airplanes, um, and the Seneca and the Saratogas as they're built, which, yeah, Piper will still build Senecas and Saratogas if you ask them.
That's pretty cool. Go get a custom built airplane for you. Have you flown the um, Have you flown the the new diesel power plants that Piper's flying yet? Yes, that's a story in and of itself. <laughs> uh, especially the first day we got the POH. Uh, can't really talk about that specifically, but have flown the diesel Archer. It is a really cool concept engine. It is a cool concept on an old plane. Is the best way to think about it, really. Um, it's Piper trying to become more modern, kind of one step at a time. They actually did a pretty good job on it. Um, comparable, I think it's cheaper than a Diamond, maybe. Um, maintenance, it, it's still too new to tell on whether it's going to be more or less than a, a standard Archer. I would probably guess more, um, just given the engine technology. But that getting an engine in that thing is a story in and of itself, too. Uh, two years because the diesel is actually a, it's, it's an engine out of a Mercedes Sprinter van, right? Modified, of course, for airplanes. Yes, so essentially, um, through all of the headache, and I can only stress that so so much, um, I think this is like engine version number three that was supposed to go in the airplane. And essentially, what Mercedes had done is they took a Sprinter van engine and said. Well, let's reinforce it. Let's see if we can get higher compression for our high altitude flying. And bolted it into a test stand and ran it. And ran it at different altitudes in a pressure chamber. And it, it worked just fine. It's a proven engine block. That's like the big benefit is it's nothing crazily engineered. Um, but it's pretty much a flying car. Because a lot of what I understand, you know, all these different car power plants that are going in engines, they're not designed to run at the loads for the amount of time that you're being, or that they're being exerted to in an airplane, because, you know, in a car, yeah, you may be going 70 miles an hour, but the engine's only under 20, 30, 40 percent load, whereas in an airplane, that's a constant load. If you're at cruise, a 75 percent load is a 75 percent load for what could be, you know, like in your on an archer three maybe four or more hours at a time so that's got to be pretty well tested before you just um and there i guess there's there's been some rvs where you know everybody loves in the car community everybody loves the ls engine that gm makes their v you know their v8 and it's stupid reliable in an air in a automobile configuration but you know these guys were were losing these motors left and right in the in the airplane because they're just not although they can make a lot of power they can, they're only designed to make power at short intervals without some more internal modifications and things like that. And uh, so I guess Piper and, uh, you know, the, the engine manufacturers are having to go through this, this you know, uh, learning curve as well. Um, a big complicated thing for it is, like, whole new oil system, um, especially oil cooling at altitude. And the common misconception is as you go up in altitude, it does get colder. Um, but the air also becomes less and less dense and the cooling efficiency of that air also begins to drop off. So getting oil coolers that will work at sea level and can work at eight, nine, ten thousand feet. Um, at those increased engine loads. Right. And then, yeah, a car engine, which a lot of people will go, well, hey, a car engine is going to go 100,000, 200,000 miles, which I would have no idea how long hours wise that would be, but like probably comparable to the lifespan of of an aircraft engine but like right now we're doing 1500 rpm which yeah, that's, is that's like decent power yeah and we've been doing that rpm now for 20 miles yeah 
you know, engine's totally fine at 1500 RPM, oil system's not under tremendous load, coolant systems are not under tremendous load, and this also is not an air-cooled engine either. So remember, like, all cars have liquid cooling, at least all modern cars. So, but that's a system that's heavy and we're going to take out of an aircraft um, because we want the useful load uh, to be able to carry people or actually you know, be able to go somewhere. Um, so the block may be reliable, the engine may be reliable, but not for the application we want to use it for. Like, you can either produce tons of torque or tons of horsepower, um, but you can't necessarily get both in an airplane. You kind of can, but really, it's really delicate balance. Fadec makes it a lot more possible uh, to be able to get both, but Fadec adds its own new complexities on electrical demand and load, and if you lose electrical generation, you lose FADEC and you lose control of your engine power performance. It's the short way to think about it. Um, so you kind of rob Peter to pay Paul in some of these aircraft in, in some of these aircraft design choices. Um, and then now, with all the uh, wanting to ban leaded fuels, um, or at least certainly reduce the use of leaded fuels, now we're talking about you know UL ninety six, I think is what it is, unleaded ninety six octane fuel. And there's a couple other variants out there. So the manufacturers are trying to find uh, ways to get an engine in an airplane right now that can burn 100 low lead or Jet A is not really a problem if it can, if it can create enough compression to burn Jet A, but can burn 100 low lead and then can also get certified for most manufacturers are going with uh, UL96. It's kind of seeming to be the fuel of choice. Um, which is complicated because you have to certify the airframe and you have to certify the engine to run on those fuels. So it's a, the FA does good work, but they also make things a process. So you take some good with the bad. That's really interesting. Um, do you have any other, um, other than the, the M600, we talked about that a little bit. Do you have a, a favorite aircraft to fly? Maybe Piper, maybe not Piper. Um, anything overall that's your favorite or maybe it is an M600 uh, so favorite airplanes I've actually flown and have been PIC of I would have to say M600 um, favorite airplane right now probably the Citation 10 uh, it's fresh on your mind it's fresh and, you know <laughs> it, it's a Citation 10 plus um, let's see other airplanes like airplanes I find really interesting which like, I, I always want to fly a PC-12. I would love to fly a TBM, um, which is kind of funny considering TBMs are chief competitor. Um, but they make a good airplane, um, and that would be fun to fly. Uh, and I've kind of been on the ATR-72 kick recently with potential job opportunities flying ATRs. Trying to convert you. Part ninety one has more fun. You, so you've already converted me. Uh, well, so the citation converted me. Should, let me let me say that. Um, and ninety one has some advantages of being less rigorous than one thirty five, or especially part one twenty one. Um, and unfortunately, like I have a bias of ninety one because of you know having been a flight instructor for so long, it all seems you know rigorous and strict because it, there's a, there's so much paperwork involved even just doing like type training or type like training on airplanes is there something you see that's consistent among all the people that you train that 
you know somebody slipping up on or like the, the industry as a whole and granted you know you're not training professional corporate pilots can you know you've got a lot of recreational guys but let's just call it aviation as a whole and in that category of airplane do you see something that where almost everyone or a lot of people are messing up on or maybe they're not as proficient in what they need to be doing like is there something as an industry that we all need to practice on and get sharper hone our skills in um okay a couple things come to mind the a big one for people especially new to complex airplanes and retractable gear airplanes especially single engine retractable gear is just because you have positive rate on your VSI does not mean your gear goes immediately to the up position when you have 8,000 feet of pavement still in front of you. Okay. Um, yes, it's a turbine engine. Yes, they're incredibly reliable, but it only takes one bird to get sucked in that intake, and then you're going to have wished that the gear stayed down. And that's really a 600 issue because the transition time is 10 seconds and you can't interrupt the gear cycle while it's in motion, or you might actually rip off impeller blades in the pump, and then you have no hydraulic pump, and then no gear, and it's partially deployed. So that's um, where that's obviously different, where you're flying the 10 plus or any other jet, you know, you're making a commitment to go fly no matter what you're done. So at, at that point, you're gonna be out of runway, you can't stop. So that, that could be something that's a bit different. Like right. if you're coming from a big jet, or on the other hand, you know, a lot of people that are flying small single engine airplanes, fixed gear, you know, they're they're maybe watching YouTube or something like that. You know, a lot, they're watching these jet guys and flying around and that's what they see all the time is, you know, oh, positive rate, gear up, you know, so that, that probably gets thrown into to what you do. Yep. And I would say it's common both for the corporate guys, like just what you said, they're so used to flying a Citation or a Challenger, or Gulfstream, whatever it may be, um, and even the airline guys, the 7.3 or Airbus that you know v1 positive rate you know maybe they have a minimum altitude like 50 feet over the pavement gear comes up um and then the inexperienced kind of ga guys uh it's just it's the first time they've ever done it and a lot of it is the instruction they've gotten beforehand some of it's really good some of it not so good the person who did their endorsement like if you ever are a flight instructor, one of the things you always learn is primacy. Um, and what you're taught first is going to be what you stick to the most. And if you come into training, um, especially good high-quality training with some things that are wrong, it can make it a little difficult to kind of relearn almost. Um, it's not to say don't get flight training from flight instructors or from someone at your local field, but just kind of you know always make sure that you're getting taught the right thing. Especially if you're paying them. All right. Um, the other thing I would kind of note, the gear the gear being kind of isolated to just the, the, obviously, retrack airplanes, but mostly to the 600 because of its weird gear cork. Um, but it is amazing to me how many people fly instrument approaches and cannot read well a approach plate or like they'll get basic information but something I do with my students is I'll hand them a paper plate which they may not be used to paper because everyone uses iPads I'm guilty of that but I hand them an expired plate and I would probably say out of like a hundred people I've done this to um, excluding the airline guys because it's so drilled into them that 
98, 95% of people just go on reading an approach plate that has fixes that don't even exist. And instead of reading that the plate's like four years out of date, um, when they go to load it into the database in the sim, or in the airplane, because I've done this in the plane too, they then get confused when the waypoints don't match. Um, and then from there, I would say about half of them actually say something. Um, the other half just continue. Just keep pushing it in. Yeah. And it's it's more... I don't know if it's not wanting... And sometimes it could be the anxiety and training. You don't want to sound dumb. Like, maybe you did something wrong. You know, and it, it's like, oh, well, maybe the instructor's going to judge me on... Like, oh, I can't put it in an approach. This is something really simple. Um... But, like, in aviation, if you something's not going right or, you know, you loaded something in and it didn't load correctly, like, say something. You have another pilot there. Because, and maybe you did load something in incorrectly. Or maybe your avionics aren't working correctly. Or maybe your database was up to date when we departed, but something happened and it reverted back to a previous version. Yeah. It's all software. Anything can happen. Right. Yeah. Or, or your plate's out of date. You know, that happens. That um, so on the so that's that's maybe the number one slip up. Is there anything you've been doing this a you know a while? Is there anything from the time that you first started training uh, as an instructor to to now that you've seen the industry or the pilots coming through as a whole that uh, you're not seeing as many mistakes in that one area or maybe just fast improvement in general in a general category? Um, okay, so I think something that has improved, maybe not to the level that I would want to see it be at, but it is improving, is a stabilized approach concept, which in an Archer and a 172, like you and I have done some things in 172s approach-wise <laughs> that we've had space shuttle approaches, we've, yes. we've thought we were landing on closed runways even though we were almost sure that we weren't. Right, well that's why we did the low overfly, no, yeah. no X's. No X's, no traffic, which was almost Made concerning. it worse, because <laughs> there's nothing on the airport. But like, so a stabilized approach in a Cessna or like a Cherokee or, or an Archer, like you can get away with some deviation off of that. Especially if the runway's long enough. Um, but when you start moving into the turboprops, the 600, the 500, TBMs, Pilatuses, and, and especially as you get to bigger airplanes, like forward slip should no longer be in your vocabulary. Um, go around is, is always your best friend if you're not comfortable with the approach or something's not going well. Um, but it's so vital to fast planes, especially if you're trying to jam it in on a really small runway that being on a stable approach, on speed, on altitudes, appropriate descents. And we've all learned this in instrument flying, in the Terps manual, your vertical descent chart, uh, based on a nautical mile of distance and ground speed. And I'm sure we've all forgotten that chart because you saw it, you used it for your check ride, and then you've never used it ever again. But that that is a chart that can make it very, very easy to get known performance based off of either a power setting, descent angle, um, and knowing that you are going down a three degree glide slope, you are going to intercept the runway and managing your speed. Um, it's, and it's certainly gotten better. It can always improve. Um, it always then depends on the pilot's experience. One thing I will know that from the GA side of things in the piston world, that Cirrus pilots who have gone through good CSIP or I guess Cirrus training 
initial training are really good at speed management or at least certainly better armed to be able to kind of advance the concept up to the next level versus someone who's just kind of flown a 172 or an archer around just kind of they've heard of the concept but that's as far as it goes now, i'm always fascinated by you know what 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 your students are doing and how all that all changes and uh my 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 flight training definitely wasn't conventional by the time i got my private i'd at least ridden around if not flown with other people over 30 airplanes i'm now approaching 85 or 90 airplanes now that i've flown with a variety of people who all have different ways of doing pretty much everything and uh you know i feel like my entire you know flight training history has been very unconventional so it's it's interesting to see some of the more standardized training pilots that are coming up through very standardized programs big 141 schools or um, even just a 61 school where you're flying with the same instructor or maybe one or two instructors in pretty much the same airplane from start to a thousand or fifteen hundred hours i mean i was i was lucky very fortunate but i was flying you know i got to fly citation jets before i had 500 hours total time and so then i came into a 141 school which is where we met and you know i was just confused as to what was going on you know we we weren't we you know the, the things that they were teaching everybody because you know everybody's getting the exact same experience well i was the only one out of 300 students that had ever probably started a jet engine or you know much less flown a jet made landings and stuff like that so right you know it it the the i do feel like maybe there are i'm sure 100 percent there's gaps in my training and i find them periodically just in small things like that you know and uh <laughs> You know, where where nobody bothered to tell me, or I haven't picked it up somewhere. But at the same time, I've got all this other information locked up in my mind that the thousands of other people that go through a 141 school in the one or two airplanes with one or two instructors don't have. And I always wonder, you know, where I sit on the balance of, you know, safety and proficiency you know where I'm at now versus that just because of how the foundation was built and uh compared to the next guy so it's interesting you say that and it's a topic I like talking about where I think there's good and bad to standardize 141 flight schools um and I can't coin the phrase because I'm not the first person to come up with the thought of this but um the the fear with a 141 flight school that trains a whole lot of students and then hires those students back as flight instructors is you create a scenario of inbreeding um, where you're re you're essentially recycling and regurgitating the same ideas and you're never bringing in anything new so the downside of 141 flight schools is it's the same thing over and over and over again whether it's right or it's wrong it's being passed on versus a 61 school if you fly with the same person they're obviously going to teach you the same things all the time it's it, it's always the one person but if you do get to fly with a whole bunch of other people you start to see different perspectives you may learn something new or you may relearn something that maybe you learned incorrectly the first time or you didn't learn it completely the first time um, not every instructor is good at teaching everything um, I think you can definitely attest to that. I like to think I'm really good at avionics computers, and I somehow am really good at regs. I don't know why or how, but you are, it you are my regulation person. For for everybody listening and or watching, 
Sean, anytime I have an obscure question, and even the pilot that I bought the 10 Plus with, I've even gotten him where, where he's even mentioned a couple times, well, call your buddy Sean, ask him. Sean will know if anybody does. And, uh, you know, so you're, you're kind of king, especially of the strange ones that, that aren't necessarily common knowledge. Yeah, the ones you got to dig for. And I don't, I don't know why, but, yeah, I found it easy to just kind of memorize them or at least know enough about it so I could go look it up later and, and you know, read it and understand what it's trying to tell me, or at least what I think it's trying to tell me. Uh, and then weather, but, you know, that's more more always giving you weather briefings, more so than not. Right. Yeah, that's um, always... If the weather's really bad, I'll always always send you on a weather briefing. Hey man, look what I'm look what I'm thinking about going into, and uh, you know either either watch me on FlightAware or if you have a real huge contest to what I'm about to do, please tell me now. Yep. And uh, but I, I feel like our friendship over the years, I've pulled you into the, I guess, less risk averse. I've made you less risk averse from obviously you're still safe and I think I'm safe but I've I've pulled you out of a, from where you were at it almost on the extreme end of being conservative about weather yep. and uh, you know branching out into getting maybe a little closer to the precipitation or <laughs> you know maybe <laughs> don't laugh that's my favorite one <laughs> a little closer to precipitation or maybe if the ceilings are maybe 100 or 200 feet lower than they used to be hey we'll still go it's still perfectly safe you know, kind of, because uh, again, I, I, you know, I was flying with all these different people and all these different airplanes, and about 500 hours, man, we were, you know, I, I grew up in Texas. We, our winters are nasty. They're just, they're just gross, and, and you know, it's winter time all most of the day. You know, you're you're hitting approaches down the ILS minimums. You know, 200 feet, 250 feet, 300 feet, and uh, you have to get used to that. Whereas a lot of people, again, that goes back to like the 141 training. Say in Florida, there's tons of flight schools here. You know, these guys. They're blessed. We're all blessed now. I live here. And, uh, you know, we're blessed with good weather almost all year round. Yeah. And if you don't want to train or don't want to fly in bad weather, usually, what, 24 hours at most and you can leave again? With a lot more favorable conditions. Sometimes in like an hour or two. Right. And, yeah, it goes from nasty IFR thunderstorms to, you know, beautiful scattered cloud VFR day. Um, And I think for the weather, I think two things have happened at least for me like my my intro to flying came in air rescue and we fly in some really nasty weather but i had a lot of trust in my pilots and in the aircraft we were flying in that i felt we were capable and then for me then kind of coming off of sikorsky and airbus helicopters into a cherokee was like well this isn't you know it's not an Airbus. It's not a Sikorsky. Like, how much can this thing really take? It's not burning jet fuel. It's real small. Right. <laughs> and then but the other good thing, and this is what I like about flying with you, is you've brought me, I think we've brought each other to the middle, where right. I've brought you down a little bit to go, well, maybe reconsider it or maybe, you know, <laughs> go around the store this time. Um, and you've definitely kind of brought me back where, okay, yeah, no, uh, just because it doesn't burn jet fuel and is it made by a world-renowned manufacturer, it, it'll still do just fine. And certainly now in 600s, like, the weather today would have been very flyable. Totally. Which, obviously, it, none of the listeners can see, but it was pretty much thunderstorms all day scattered around. Yeah. And maybe one little hard line where we wouldn't have gone out, but that was for yeah 30 minutes, maybe an hour tops. And right. We were, you were good flyable weather again. You wait an hour, and we could have gone down to the Keys. Right. You know, maybe not the Bahamas, because of direction but yeah could have certainly gotten to the keys easily today yeah and it um you know it, 
I gotta tell them. I uh, first airplane I bought bought a 1964 172 <laughs> E model. It was in Kentucky. I was super excited. I love uh, that airplane. Yeah, that's for a while. That was your Facebook profile picture. Heck, maybe it still is. It still I is. I think it still is. It there still you. is. He um, he bled for this airplane. Okay, this yep. is this is. But that's another story. Maybe here pretty quick. It, um, <laughs> so, you know, so we go pick up my my 172 E. Um, I, pretty low time. It was like 4,500 hours. It's lived in dry places most of its life. Go to pick it up. And uh, there's this big patch on the leading edge of the wing, probably like 12 inch by 12 inch. <laughs> Hadn't seen that, before, you know, in the pictures. And uh, so I'm with my other friend, probably my, probably my longest friend, best friend, Christopher Nelson. We, he, I kind of trailed him up in the ranks. He's also an AMP, flies jets, flies tailwheel, lives at an air park, loves all things computers, avionics, technicians. Like the dude's an all-around like. Does just, he do warbirds too? Uh, yeah, he dabbles in warbirds. Yep. Um, Radials. Yeah, he works on lots of radials. He, uh, his family has a Cessna 195. Um, he works on Rotax stuff. He works on, I mean, this guy's jack of all trades, really. Like, like you know, if if I can get Chris on the phone, I know I've got an answer. Or at least if I don't, he's he's a Google guru. He'll figure it out in like 30 minutes. Or tell you who else to call, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But anyhow, so he, he's up there, coming up there to do a pre-buy with me. And I've already got Sean lined up to come up and ride, the, ride uh, home in the airplane. Uh, Christopher's going, you know, airline back to Texas. Me and Sean taking it back to um, to Vero Beach. I'm gonna be so excited. I got my first brand new airplane. So we go look at this patch, and the, the the broker was talking about, oh yeah, man, it uh, it got it got shot. I'm like, <laughs> shot by what? Oh, like a bullet, like down in El Paso, you know. It's, and uh, so we were going and digging deeper in the logs, and sure enough, it does say, you know, in El Paso, it's getting this wing repair, and um, apparently it, you can you know get in there and, and see it had a, like a microscopic little dent in the spar but it, it you know the spar saved it so i don't know what my poor airplane at the time had did in its previous life i like to think i rescued it but um you definitely did yeah it's yeah i i definitely did it, it set for a couple of years before i bought it which now with the airplane i have that's apparently my specialty uh the airplane i had uh that i have now i've got a mooney 231 it's set for uh it said for almost 10 years before I decided to jump in it and go fly it. And uh, yeah. subsequently put a lot of money into fixing it up. Uh, I Evan, think I've got a good little airplane. Now. Evan and I question your sanity every day. Yeah, yeah. well, that, you know, those flights, That's I learned a lot on those flights. But <laughs> back to the Cessna. Back, you know, the, my Cessna, I buy it. It's got, a, um, it's got an IFR. It is an IFR airplane. It's got a GTN 650 in it. Was, which, it, was it IFR certified when we actually flew it back? Uh, or did it need the static inspection? It needed a static inspection, yep. and it um, it needed the um, it needed new databases. I wasn't able to get the oh, databases yeah, and everything right. moving. It was like two cycles old, I think. Yeah, or something like that. Because yeah. the plane had been sitting, nobody bothered to update the databases. Heck, even airplanes that fly, unfortunately, most people don't bother to update the databases. Yeah, um, that's what we did all this afternoon. Yeah, so yeah, that's why we went down and got in the 10 plus, got to run the engines, update the charts, get everything ready to go. That's like my pet peeve on airplanes is if the databases aren't updated. Oh god, it, it ruins the day. And uh, you know, because it's so easy, and it's if you were ramp checking people, don't get any ideas. But if you were ramp checking, that would be like that's, that's yeah, bingo. That's if, so easy. If you're the FAA listening, um, you know, don't ramp check um, <laughs> as as much. But databases, uh, it's a big one. 
So I always try and force people, you know, hey, you really need to get this done. Even if you don't fly IFR very often, make it a habit to update your charts every month. Yes. And then you're ready to go if the situation arises. But yes. um, back to my poor old system. We keep recircling back. <laughs> poor thing. So the old and Sean gets up there and um, getting ready to fly home. He's never flown in a Cessna before. Yep. I haven't flown in a 172 in a little while, but I had done a decent amount of training. And I flew other Cessnas. And uh, it's six-pack with my little 650. I'm ready to go home. Sean goes to get in the airplane, and uh, he doesn't fit. Like, the seatbelts just just won't let him buckle up. And, in a 172. Uh, yeah, so, you know, you're not small. You're not fat. I mean, you're not a fat guy. You just, you know, you. I'm 6'1, 250 pounds. Yeah, yeah, you're you're good. And so, we end up having to take the seatbelts. They they've got them in backwards. Okay, so. Oh yeah. The, right. the seatbelts <laughs> weren't even installed correctly, which is why they were so tight on your side. You couldn't you couldn't buckle in. Yep. So we get the seatbelts fixed, yeah, where we can go fly. And uh, you're about to go get in, and you rip your finger open. Is that what it was? No, it was resetting the seatbelt on your side where the trim wheel was to get it the way it's supposed to be mounted to the airframe there's a piece of metal oh is the it was the side guard to the flap handle yeah it's not guarding much it's well it, it did guard the handle at the expense of my hand uh and bled all over the freaking place yeah so that's why we say you know he really bled for this airplane but but by the time the seven hours of and what we're by the time we take off from louisville you're what seven hours into your day Yes, I had woken up at 2.30 that morning to hop on a flight to, it was Charlotte, and then to Louisville, then Uber to you, and I was, yeah, seven hours into the day at that point already for a 10-hour flight home. Oh, ten hour. it wasn't 10 hours. Well, it, was, it was 10 hour trip. It was 10 hour trip. No, it was 12 hours. The 172, hours. that's right. Because we one. left at noon, we got back at Melbourne midnight. at midnight, and I still had to drive home for an hour. Yeah, and I had to, I had to take the airplane one more leg back to Vera. Yes. The, um, of course, I was so excited. I was running on adrenaline. So was and, I, until I got in my car. <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, yeah, so the Cessna, of course, it w- would have been a lot quicker had we not had to make three fuel stops, because the 172E does not carry a whole lot of fuel. Well, we also didn't trust the gauges that and, much. Yeah, and we weren't trusting the gauges. You know, I mean, it's a new airplane to me and him. We had been sitting, you know, and we were flying at night, albeit the weather was great, or the first half of the trip was the day, but we ended up flying some legs at night after we built up some confidence in the airplane. Well, it was flying good. Fuel burn was right on cue. Yeah, we did. We only did the one leg. It was from Baxley, Georgia to Melbourne. And so the only airport we landed at controlled was the one at night, which was good because yeah. everything else was uncontrolled fields that we had never been to before. Right. Which was, you know, growing up with my people, that, that again goes back to like the way that I grew up flight training, like during the weekends like my buddy Chris we'd jump in one of his seven airplanes and go fly around and go see things go find grass strips at friend zone go land go see them you know like there's it, so many people that don't get it to experience that and it is so fantastic because that was my first time getting to experience it I don't I've been telling you we need to do it again uh, but it, that was such a great trip we can tell them I know it's your favorite you're itching to tell them about Baxley tell uh, them about Baxley so Baxley is this cool little airport that actually came back to bite me on my commercial check ride because my examiner goes to Baxley on a regular <laughs> basis and I filed there for that check ride but that's a separate story so we get there it's in the middle of southern Georgia absolutely nowhere and we're we, I see the airport I see the runway and it looks like it's all potholed like you know it's being in the process of being ripped up and there is 
zero people on ADSV, on TAS. There's nobody on frequency, like nothing. Yeah. Flight Fallen cut us loose about 30 miles back, said, you're the only ones out here, good luck. Yeah, like you're between, what was it, Peachtree and like just 10 miles south into Jacksonville, like we were in. Yeah. And, like, so, and it's sunset, we're thinking, oh, we're gonna lay a good cheap gas, maybe hopefully find dinner. Um, so on approach, I tell Brayton it was his leg to fly and land. Because I had the space shuttle approach into that airport Tennessee, in Tennessee. Somewhere in Tennessee. Yeah. In the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. We're really <laughs> testing the extremes of my 172. You know, we're taking it out of Louisville and we're like over the top of the airport. And it's got, it's the E models had 45, uh, 40 degrees of flaps. So we were, you know, I was telling Sean, I was like, look what the Cessna can do, man. It's got big flaps. You just pull the power back, pull the flaps out, and we just spiraled down. You know, that was the first time you'd ever done anything like that, I think. That was my first Cessna flight. Yeah, yeah. Full stop. First time I ever flown a Cessna. Did a steep approach with slow flight. And that was you flying. Yeah. Like, I wasn't even demoing it. I was just like, hey, man, rip the flaps out and, you know, point oh, it at the ground. Oh, and a forward slip to land. And a forward slip. But, you know. Um, oh, that was the same departure where you were, it was your leg, because that departure out of there to Baxley. We had to go over the mountains, and it was a hot day now in the afternoon. And I'm like, uh, are we going to get over this mountain at all? Which we did. <laughs> I, I don't know, a thousand feet or so. Oh, yeah, we had plenty of clearance. Something like but, that. It, you know, even me, I'm kind of wondering, I'm like, man, my, my poor little O300, this airplane I just bought, like, this is, you know, because I was, everything I flew, it was just kind of a weird situation. All the high performance stuff I flew, which is which is all that I had been flying before I bought the Cessna, it was all turbocharged. So, yep. you know, I was used to just normal climb rates all the time, no matter the configuration. Yep. And so this was like, man, those mountains are getting a little closer. And we, a little closer. To anyone listening, we had a lot of ways out. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were looking at this 30, 30 miles away. Yes. And we're looking at mountains to 55, 65, I think, were the peaks. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, we were trying to go up to 7,500 and beyond. And the scattered base was like 95. So we had a bunch of... We had a gap. Totally fine. Totally. Yeah. It Every, sounds... It sounds... All of our stories sound a lot sketchier than they are. We're... Yeah. This is actually probably the least sketchy story. <laughs> uh, actually. Uh, a lot of Whataburger runs in the middle of the night. Go uh, Texas. Go yeah, Whataburger. Right. Except this was in Jacksonville, in a very sketchy area of Jacksonville, at the middle of the night. Um, so we... So I we, love being able to call my friends, like, at about, like, 9 o'clock. Hey, you want to go jump in the airplane and get Whataburger for a late dinner, like a midnight snack? You know, and then being like, oh, oh yeah, man, like, we're going to meet you at the airplane in 15 minutes. Let's go. Dude, That that's awesome. Oh, that's why you get an airplane. You do shit. Um, especially like trips from Louisville back to Vero um, in one day, uh, pretty much in 24 hours. Yeah, and that's a 100 knot 0300 Cessna, you know, old school. I mean, it's not a nice new one with the big engines or anything crazy. There's that's... there's a little bit of time there, though, over Atlanta. I think we were doing like 89, 90 knots on the ground. <laughs> well, it, it didn't take a lot of headwind for you to feel like you were not moving. Yeah. It. So we so we get to Baxley. We, we're on approach, and I'm like, uh, hey, maybe we should overfly. Like, is the airport open? Because I didn't check the notums. It was Braden's leg. Trust I'm like, yeah, me. man, that it's it's open, it's open. So we, to humor me, he did do a low pass and you know didn't see any X's, anything like that. But I also didn't see any airplanes. Like, I can't emphasize that enough. Zero planes anywhere on that airport. We land, we get to the self serve pub, and now we're marveling at the fact that we are the only human beings at this airport. With a really nice FBO, actually. Um, so, if you ever are looking for kind of the country airport, cheap gas, 
Uh, Baxley, Georgia, which the the identifier escapes me. But uh, it's like BXH or AXB. Or, um, I don't know. We'll have to Baxley, Georgia. There's only one. We, you'll, you'll find it. We will add it into the comment info yeah, we can area do that. later. But we'll put in all the airport codes for the trip that we did. Um, so you can do the same trip yourself in a 172, hopefully, and experience it. Um, but Baxley, we get there. There's just the keys to the crew car just hanging out on the desk. Which, to get into that airport, you just type in the... Was it Unicom or CTAF? Unicom or Squawk VFR. You know, one of the normal things. And it, like I said, I'm loving this. Because this is like fun in Texas for me. I hadn't done this for a couple of years since I moved to Florida. Like, this is... this is you know, I'm, I'm like, Sean, this is the best. This is what we used to do all the time. And you're like, are you sure we can take this? Like, yeah, here this I just am. seems so wrong. Here I am thinking this is sketch as fuck. And we're about to get arrested for, like, carjacking. Um, but no, like, FBO owners were totally cool. There was a phone number we called in the logbook that, you know, mileage in the car. And we went into town, which I can only describe to you all is, if you've ever seen the movie My Cousin Vinny, the town in Alabama where it <laughs> takes place in uh, was Baxley, Georgia. Um, the courthouse was in the middle of the town, but it had fantastic barbecue, which, I mean, after... It, it, was, in, in a, it was in a shed. It yeah. was a barbecue in yeah. a shed. It was barbecue in a shed, um, you know, picnic tables outside, you walk up to the window, order. They did have a drive through I think, though, which I was kind of impressed with. Um, great sweet tea, which was awesome until about Daytona, and then I had to pee. Uh... <laughs> And then realizing in this 172, we had another 45 minutes left to Melbourne. Um, that sucked. But other than that, I mean, great trip. Well, we have uh, we have made it back to at least my house. John's only got another few more minutes, so he's kicking me out, which concludes the first episode of the, the Crew Car Podcast. I feel like this was awesome. This was a success. And, we got to uh, do it again. Yeah, I hope definitely you're definitely going to be a frequent flyer to the, the Crew Car Podcast. And... Uh, you know, for anybody, let us know what you think, and you know, if you want to hear some more stories, ask about Sean. We'll put some contact info for, for for Sean in the description, and you'll have some contact info for me, and maybe a, get us a podcast email going where you can submit questions and things like that. And, oh, I would uh, love to answer crowd questions. Crowd, yeah, I think that'd be great. And yes. then we can we can do our own like Q and A podcast of answering the crowd questions. Yes, man, this is yes. this is going to be exciting. I'm, I'm super looking forward to it. Hell yeah. Well, awesome. We'll uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for joining. See y'all.